Uh, that's our main thing. But we also do kind of various mini-series seasonally as appropriate in the life of the church come say Easter or Christmas. And at this time of year, what we like to do is we like to uh, let the Word of God kind of propel us into the year with the big things at the forefront of our minds, all the most important things right there at the front. And so we're doing this series called Core, and its focus is, uh, what is what is the core DNA of our church? What is it that is most core to the life of our church? Uh, and so, um, yeah, if you're looking to visiting this church, if you're new to this church, good news. It's a good week to be here, and the next four weeks are going to be really kind of foundational for how it is we understand ourselves. What do we want to be known for? What we think are the most important things in the life of our church. And so, um, yeah, great time to be here if you are visiting. Over the next four weeks, we are going to be covering those kind of four key strands of DNA that make up the life of our church. So let me walk you through what these things are. Actually, before I say that, before I walk you through them, um, I just want to kind of point out that these, these four things, and they're so, so kind of intrinsic to what we do here that it's present whether or not we use this kind of language. So language, the labels we use is just kind of conceptual categories, but this stuff is just here no matter what we're doing in the life of our church. These are four things we are going to be on about all the time. Uh, these are the four drums we're just going to keep banging until Jesus says, shh, put the six down, stop banging that drum. We're going to keep going until he actually commands us to stop doing this. We think it's that important. And so um, these are the four things, right? If you've been at this church for a while, you should be familiar. If not, this, is, this might be new. The first one is we want to be a gospel-centered church. Gospel-centered church. And that is because we believe, as our tagline says on our sign out front, we believe Jesus changes lives. And the life, death, resurrection, the personal work of Jesus is the center of everything in this church. That's our theme for today. Next week, we're going to be looking at the idea of discipleship, living our lives with Jesus. Discipleship is a classic kind of Christianese word. What does it mean? Uh, and so it is it's one of those words, but it's also a very, very, very good word, which is why we're using it. Capture something so important. And so that's about our life with Jesus. Week three, we're going to be talking about community. Life together. God hasn't called us to the faith on our own, but into a family. He's welcomed us into his body, his bride, the church. And so we talk about our life together. That'll be week three. And then bringing it home, uh, we're going to be talking about mission. Another kind of loaded Christianese kind of term, but another very important word for us today. Uh, life with purpose. The Lord has called us not to a pointless existence. He's given us something to be about. Something to point our aim, our aim our lives at. And so that is going to be our last week. So there are four things. Gospel centrality, discipleship, community, mission. We think that encompasses the, the, the core of the Christian life and what it means to be a church and a Christian. So let me pray for us before we jump in this morning. Uh, Father, we pray this morning for First, we want to just ask for your help. We, we ask that you would help us to just stop, to breathe in the gospel air around us that you've given us, that we would be still before you. We focus our hearts on you and on your word now in this moment. Lord, would, you, would your presence be felt among us through the power of your word? Would your word speak? Would your spirit penetrate our hearts and our minds and give us grace on grace 
today as we seek out the Lord our hearts. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Gospel-centered. Gospel, gospel centrality. What are we even saying with that phrase? It's one of those phrases which has kind of come to me less and less because it's been around. It's kind of been used and abused, I guess, a bit. And so um, what are we actually talking about when we use that phrase? Basically, what we mean by being gospel-centered is we want to keep the gospel as the functional center of our life and our church and our faith. Keep it as the functional center of our life, our church, and our faith. It is the belief that the gospel that saves is the very same gospel by which you must continue to live each and every day. Gospel is the central element. It is the central piece of the Christian life, and it must continually renew and invigorate our lives. It must be present in the life of a believer and the church. Tim Keller, he summarizes it pretty well when he says this. He says, the gospel is not the ABCs of the faith. It is the A to Z. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. So the ABCs of the faith, it's A to Z. It's not the minimum required doctrine we need. It is how we make all progress for the Christian. It is so important. And so we need to bang this drum hard and continually because the reality is <laughs> the gospel is so counterintuitive in every way. So counterintuitive. It runs so backwards to our nature and our incl inclinations that we are in constant danger of drifting away from the gospel as we have received it in the word of God, drifting away into some kind of cheap, convenient substitute. The present real danger for every single Christian in every single church. One, uh, one pastor, author in the States, a guy called Tony Morita, he gives some um, some options about like where you can go if you're not gospel-centered, the kind of roads you can walk down, the kind of churches that exist today. And he says there are gospel-denying churches. They're not gospel-centered, they're gospel-denying. Uh, these kind of churches shouldn't really be called churches because they just straight up explicitly deny what is central to the Christian faith. And so in these churches, in these categories, like the churches that pray to Mother Earth, churches that uh, actively deny that Jesus died for our sin or rose again, yes, these churches exist. Yes, they are out there. They are in Brisbane. Uh, and so just beware. Just if you're looking for another church, just because a church has a cross on the building doesn't mean they believe that cross means anything. There are gospel-denying churches. The next kind of category is a bit more popular, or we might come across these ones a bit more, gospel redefining churches. So they take the biblical gospel and they kind of turn it into some, to mean something else entirely. Uh, so in this kind of category are the, the gospel, uh, prosperity gospel churches, you know, where God just wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And um, if you just have more faith, you'll live that kind of life. And that's the message of the church. And so salvation is not about kind of salvation from sin. Salvation is like salvation from being poor. That's kind of the redefinition of the gospel. It's no longer about salvation from sin. It's about God giving you that BMW. If only you would put a little bit more money in the offering box, and then God might give you that BMW, right? Um, so that's one way the gospel gets redefined in these kind of churches. The other one that's pretty common today is the, the social gospel, where the gospel gets discarded, and it no longer means salvation from sin. It now means salvation from the societal issues. 
So all God requires of you is to help the poor and not end of your personal sin. And God gets re- reframed in that kind of lens. Um, one theologian, Richard Niebuhr, he described uh, this, these kind of redefinitions as he says these kind of churches, they, they present a God without wrath, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. Cross was entirely discarded or redefined into the empty kind of terms. We don't want to go there, please. The next kind of church category down the list is the gospel-assuming churches. Gospel-assuming churches. These these churches, their their, um, statement of faith is orthodox. There it is. The statement of faith, they believe the gospel, it's there. Um, But they rarely talk about it. Like, it's just, everyone knows it. We don't really talk about it ever. Um, And so it's just assumed, you know that part. So on a Sunday, what we'll do instead is we'll use our time to kind of give you practical tips on living. Six ways to improve your relationships. Uh, how to spend money better, right? Uh, therapeutic sermons about how to have peace and uh, all these kind of things. It's kind of, so it's kind of like, it's Christian niche. It's Christian life, really. Uh, it's just, you know, it's, people get there, churches get there because they believe that people be put off by the heavy stuff and just give you a TED talk Kind of about how to how to help how, how to help me out this week something practical don't say anything uncomfortable and um, these kind of churches are everywhere and the problem is less about what's uh, what's present at those churches but what what's missing missing the center of faith really it's assumed you guys know that so we'll talk about all the other stuff gospel assumed churches we can fall there pretty quick if we're not careful next one down the list gospel affirming churches gospel affirming churches. Again, this is, this is more kind of positive territory now. At least they're affirming the gospel. Um, like in the previous group, these churches believe the gospel doctrinally. There it is in their statement of faith. But the gospel is kind of, it's kind of segmented out of the life of the church into just evangelism. So we've got, we might be running out of courses, and that's where we'll talk about the gospel, but in the life of the church, it kind of doesn't have much of an effect on the, the, the day in, day out life of the church. And so it's believed, but it's just kind of, it's kind of segmented over there. Gospel affirming churches. The next one down, we can get a little bit more specific here. Gospel proclaiming churches. Churches that we can read out, you're going to hear the gospel in the service, right? Gospel uh, churches where the gospel is going to be present in the corporate worship, it's believed, it's presented, it's, it's, it's highlighted, even underlined. Um, this one's probably the most subtle kind of distortion of what we want to be, right? Um, because here the gospel is still, it's there, it's present in the air of the church, and yet it's still kind of just for the newcomers in the room, really. That's, that's who we're really talking to when we're talking about the gospel. So the gospel's still kind of just evangelistic. It's, it's purely for the not-quite-yet-Christian. And so, yes, in these churches, the gospel kind of it's, it tips people into the kingdom, and yet it isn't really taught as the center of our lives. Not the center. And so instead, kind of what gets taught by default instead of that is this kind of like post-conversion moralism. So yes, the gospel says you for your sin, and then kind of the message you kind of hear is that, well then it's kind of after that point, come back to me to follow the rules, right? Not get kicked out of God's family by disqualifying myself. And so and that's kind of the, the effect of what happens in those churches. It's kind of 
fairly moralistic. Finally, gospel-centered churches. This is the church that we want to be, right? This is the kind of churches we want to be. These churches, they preach the gospel all the time, explicitly, to everyone. Because at the end of the day, everyone at some stage, at some point in their hearts, are unbelievers. We have little, little kind of enmity, enemy territory inside our hearts of unbelief that God needs to come and break down and turn us into more kind of whole, wholehearted Christians. And so these churches, they preach the gospel to everyone. They apply explicitly the gospel to live. If you were here for the last few weeks, this is what we've been doing with the concept of rest. The last few weeks, Sam did a great job, and Matt also did as well, talking about how the gospel shapes our rest, gives us rest. So that was a great example to just point out and go, yeah, well done. That's exactly what we're doing. What we believe in this church is that everything must flow out of the gospel. Everything must flow out of the gospel. And let me use, give you maybe two specific examples where this often gets missed or you kind of end up with a, just a moralistic version rather than a gospel-centered version. Um, just quickly, just so you kind of get a, a taste of it, um, forgiveness is one example. So the moralistic kind of approach says, look, Jesus commands you, I can show you the Bible in verse, right? Jesus commands you right here in this verse, forgive. So, forgive, right? There's the command. Besides, it'll make you feel better because you want to be carrying around like the, the backpack of unforgiveness. You can put down that thing, you can rest, you can be free from that burden. And so it'll help you move on with your life. And so Jesus has forgiven. So forgive. It's good for you. You look at the person. Jesus has that call, right? That's kind of the moralistic only version. How do you turn that court to forgive into a gospel-centered call? Well, the gospel-centered call says, listen, through the cross, God has forgiven you. You are the worst of the sinners. And that you are a sinner, right? We all exist in that same category of Sinner, through the cross, God forgives you. And now you, as a forgiven sinner who's experienced grace, who has had that life-transforming experience of what it means to stand clean before the Father, you now extend that same forgiveness out. Having experienced the wonder of forgiveness, extend that to those around you. Gospel-centered, cool, forgiveness. Uh, what about sex? This is a classic one. God's work is a very clear sexual act. Very clear. What it teaches us is that sex is a gift given by him to be enjoyed within the all-of-life commitment and covenant of marriage. The moralistic approach says, oh, sex is for marriage. But when you hit the end of the chapter and verse. And so please keep your pants on. Right? Sex is for marriage. Keep your pants on. Easy as that, right? Again, moral approach isn't entirely wrong. It's just missing the gospel-centered piece. The gospel-centered approach says, look, look, the purpose of sex is to show the oneness that exists between Christ and the church, his bride. Christ dedicates himself to his bride. He gives himself to his bride in a covenant made with his blood. He's not holding anything back. This is an all of self-commitment he has made to us. He is faithful to his bride and his promise to love her always. And so the calling to the Christian is emulate your Savior. Emulate your Savior in this way, this wholehearted commitment, all of life commitment and faithfulness and purity and love. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And treat your sex life as worship to the Lord. And it sits within the ethical limits. 
You see the difference? The first one is just the moral command. The second one is the moral command kind of grounded in the gospel. Who is Christ? What has he done? What has he done for us? And so this is kind of the, the big key principle that you need to hear today if you're, if you're a note taker. This, this is a big one. Being gospel-centered means we never disconnect the commands of God from Christ. His work, his power, his presence, his promises to us. Being gospel-centered never, that means we never disconnect God's commands from his, from the person of Christ. And so, at this church, we want to be this kind of church. Right? We want to be a gospel-centered church. We do not want to be a good advice kind of church, but a good news kind of church. So, I don't think we are in danger overnight of becoming a gospel-denying church. Right? That's not happening. As much as me and I have our disagreements about things, we're not arguing about that. <laughs> right? We are a gospel we are a gospel church. We're not gonna move into that. However, I think we would all be shocked at how fast churches out there slide from gospel centrality to gospel assumed all the way down. Just everyone knows it's all about other stuff. That happens shockingly fast. Shockingly fast. We must not ignore that danger. And so today we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have the Bible, we crack up into that. That's going to be our primary text for today. And really, what we're doing in this passage is asking the all-important question, and at the start of a series like this, where we're going to be using the phrase gospel-centered a whole lot. What is the gospel? What defines it? What marks it? What is it in its essence? I did a word count on my transcript up to this point. And I said the gospel 39 times already. The word gospel. 39 times. If you say a word 39 times in the space of, I don't know, 10 minutes, you probably need to define it. So let's do that. Um, we're going to be in the in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what we're going to see in these passages. Uh, I had 16, so I narrowed down to 4 for time's sake. The gospel is proclamational. The gospel is substitutional. The gospel is continual. And the gospel is historical. Yeah, let's do that. First, the gospel is proclamational. The gospel is proclamational. First Corinthians 15 from verse 1, let's read it. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Present tense, being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered, I handed on to you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. At its core, the gospel is a message. It is news. The word, in fact, gospel comes from the Greek, is the Greek word, euangelion, uh, which means, literally means good news. That's where the word came from. It is good news. And so you'll see in the text that it is something that Paul preached. It was a message he declared, he passed it on. You also see that, um, yeah, it's something that he, he gave. He received a message and then he passed on the message. He was the messenger. He brought them this message. And because... The gospel is a message. 
That means the gospel has a content. Make sense? The gospel has a content. We see the content in verses 3 and 4. It says, I delivered to you as of first importance. So we, we know the gospel is of first importance in the mind of Paul. All the things he writes about in all those letters, gospel is first importance, he says. This is the content. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the That he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the at its most basic, at its most fundamental, at its most ground level, the gospel is the news that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Lord. That he rose to life again, was buried, raised to life on the third day. That's the message. That's the news that Paul received that we have now been hearing about for 2,000 years. Right? That's the news. There was a point in time where that was brand new news. Right? For us, we've heard it before. But because it is proclamational, because there is a content that needs to be spoken, it relies on being passed down through words. Yes, we can show the gospel through our actions, but not, we can't pass the, the core message, right? We need to use words. There's a classic uh, case of this, right? St. Francis of Assisi, you probably all heard the story. Uh, great gospel minister in the past. Great gospel minister. He got misquoted one day uh, as saying, um, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, right? The intention behind that quote, again, not St. Francis of Assisi, someone else did that, um, is, hey, live out the gospel. The gospel should shape your life, and you should show it by your deeds. Yes and amen. But because the gospel is proclamational in nature, words are always necessary. If necessary, use words. Yes, it's always necessary. There's not, there's not an occasion where preaching the gospel doesn't involve using words. It's like saying, have a swim. If necessary, get wet. Like, by definition, the one thing needs the other, right? Um, you kind of imagine like a, a news producer welcoming a looking news anchor onto the show and saying, look, we're trying this new thing to, 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 to uh, kind of pass on the news. No words. Cameras go on in three minutes, and you can try and, you know, mine out the news stories for the day, and I will all have a good luck, right? And then the cameras start rolling, just trying to like mine out a, a car crash where people died. And it's, all, and it's all bad, right? News requires words. Why? Because there's content that needs to be communicated. And so look, if you're a Christian in the room, like, yes, being kind is awesome. Living out the gospel is actually, like, it's a mark of a gospel-centered life to live out the gospel, obviously. So let's not, let's not pretend we're, on, we're giving him too hard time about this. But we need to use words. The gospel has a message. There is a message involved in passing on the gospel. No one's going to like watch you let in someone in the traffic and see that act of kindness and go, wow, there really is a God. <laughs> Jesus really did die for my sins. He really did rise again on the third day. I think you can give it through faith in him because he let me in the traffic. <laughs> There's words. We need words, right? Um, gospel is a message. Firstly, gospel is a message. Second, the gospel is substitutional. The gospel is substitutional. This is the very heart of what it means. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. 
Let's never reload it that quickly. Christ died for our sins. The very heart of the gospel, friends, is the message that Jesus has died in your place. In your place. First Peter. This is the point which I realized that I'm going to move sermon. for the unrighteous. Do you see the substitution? Why? So that he might bring us to God. Theologians have long called this the great exchange. Right? The great exchange. Jesus lives out the life you should have lived but did not. He lives it in your place. He takes the cross and he dies in your stead. He takes the punishment for your sin. He takes your sin, your shame, your mistakes, your past, and he receives the condemnation your sin deserved in your place. You get everything that Jesus has by rights as being the Son of God. And he gives you. He gives you his perfect righteousness. He gives you uh, the, the riches that come with him. You are co-heirs with Christ. We receive all of this and we receive um, he takes our sin. Great exchange. Great exchange. He takes the cross and we walk free. He takes our guilt. You stand spotless before the throne of God. Jesus' life for your life. Friends, Christ died for your sins. Let's never get sick of This is the great exchange of the gospel. Uh, Paul in, in Romans, he's going to get really excited about what this means for us. This gives us a kind of confidence to live, a kind of gospel confidence to live our lives where we know we are free forever from sin, from the consequences of sin. One day we'll be free entirely from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. This is what he says in Romans 8.31. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? Listen to this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. Friends, God didn't forgive your sin by saying, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal, we can move past it. Listen, if that's what the judge at the Brisbane courthouse said today to the criminals who have been proven guilty of certain things, just don't worry about it. Don't, don't, it's okay, you just, you know, there's the door, out you go. Right? We, we call it a perversion of justice, do we not? 
conversion. God did not forgive us by saying, don't worry about it. Let's, let's move on. God is morally serious about the real sin of the people. No, God poured out his righteous wrath on his son that way. The punishment and justice to our sin was laid on Jesus. So friends, your sin isn't merely forgiven. It's destroyed in the cross. It is annihilated in the cross. The penalty has been received in full. The debt is paid in full. And so, friends, your forgiveness has a cost, and it costs the blood of Jesus. That is why in this passage in Romans 8, Paul is saying, listen, if the verdict has been passed, if the sentence has been carried out already, no charge against you can stick. You are free. You're a free person. Free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from shame, free from every accusing thought or word. You are free. Free in the gospel. Charles Spurgeon says this uh, in one of his sermons. He said, we may look around and defy all of our sin to destroy us. This shall be the all-sufficient argument to shut their clamorous mouths. Christ has died. He comes on now. And he cries, you have been a blasphemer. Yes, but Christ died a blasphemer's death. And he died for blasphemers. He comes another you have stained yourself with lust. Yes, but Christ died for the lascivious. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, cleanses us from all sin. So away, foul fiend. That also has received its due. But you have long resisted grace and long stood out against the warnings of God. Yes, but Christ and say what you will, O conscience. Remind me what you will. Look, this shall be my sure reply. Jesus has died. Friends, today, being gospel-centered means Christ has died. Christ has died. Let your forgiveness be sure. Let your forgiveness be sure. Let every condemnation that comes your way Receive the response that Christ Christ is God. You are free from your sin. The gospel is proclamation. It's good news about what God Christ has already done. The gospel is substitutional, the righteous for the unrighteous. Thirdly, the gospel is continual. Continual. It says this in verse 1 and 2. As a mind of the, of the gospel, brothers, as I preach to you, which you receive, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. We just um, sung this new song, didn't we? I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Present tense. That's why I stand. This is what Paul is saying here. Uh, Jane pointed out very helpfully for us before. The gospel which you have received, in which you stand and by which you are being, present tense, present tense being saved. So according, to the God, according to Paul, the gospel is something you receive. It's something you stand in. It's something that is present tense saving as you stand in it. It's a continual, ongoing reality. He's saying it is something you never graduate out of. Something you never move on from. The gospel is something you never get over and onto something else. As if there was something more important out there than standing in the gospel that you've received already. There is in the Bible a whole book dedicated to Paul calling a whole church idiots because they thought that 
yes, they were saved by grace, but then all of a sudden it was hinged on their performance. Right? The book of Galatians, this is what he says in Galatians 3 3. Are you so foolish? By the way, it's a sentence, isn't it? Are you such an idiot? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So now, now that you've received the Spirit, you're walking in the Spirit, you're saved by grace, the gospel's true. Are you now, like, is it now a hinge on your performance? Is that really how it works? Having been welcomed into God's family by grace, do you now have to, like, earn your keep before you get sent to the curb? And honestly, my own kind of experience of walk of discovering Jesus in the gospel, this was the piece that took the longest to drop, and the lesson that I've had to continually learn again and again and again and again in the life of the faith. In my in my story, um, it all hinged upon this. I didn't get this, and so I, I believed it all. I um, I knew Jesus died for my sin. Knew that He rose again. Knew God was there. Knew that He loved me. I knew all the information of the gospel, I, I believed it, and yet, though stronger than all of that was, the, was my fear. A very real fear, because I knew that I would always fall short. I knew I wasn't holy like God was holy. How could I ever be holy like God was holy? And I knew, and that, that, that fear of kind of never making the grade kept me from coming to them for a long time. For a long time. Until one day a Christian friend explained this element of the gospel to me. He explained simply, right, the ongoing nature of grace. You're saved by grace, but you're also kept by grace. The same gospel that saves you, keeps you, fuels your life. And for me, honestly, that that was it. That was the piece that I needed. It was like a penny drop moment, and in that moment I was like, yeah, I'm all all in. And from that moment, I uh, committed myself to the Lord. The Lord's kindness towards him in the gospel is true right now in this moment. The Lord's kindness to you in the gospel is true to you tomorrow. The Lord's kindness in the gospel will be true today. His grace doesn't stop coming. It will take flood. And it will be there for you tomorrow. His mercies are new every morning. And so friends, we might be less sinful in the next life, but we won't be more loved. is continual. It's proclamational that what God has done, Christ has done, it's substitutional, the righteous for the unrighteous, it is continual, it is the ongoing life source for every believer. And finally, the gospel is historical. What I mean by that is rooted in real life things that happened in history on a particular day, at a particular time, when other people were doing other things at the same time at other places. Does that make sense? Real things. Real days, real people. Right? What do we read? We read Christ that Christ died, he was buried, he was raised up on the third day, then he appeared to Cephas, which is uh, the, the Aramaic word for Peter, maybe Peter, and then to the twelve. Then verse six, he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, Paul says, though some have fallen asleep which is his fun euphemism for death. Christians, we just kind of fall asleep, right? Then he appeared to James, brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Paul saw it. 
He's saying that the gospel rests on a solid historical foundation because these things happened in real time. Go talk to them. There's 500 of them that saw him alive from the dead. Go to Jerusalem. Some of them are dead yet, but you can go talk to them. They're there. They saw it. They'll tell you what they saw. Like I can tell you now what I saw. And so the gospel is, it isn't some kind of like, someone had a vision, you can trust what he says is true. No, no, no. The, the, the gospel is something happened in history which has changed everything. And we have eyewitness accounts from people that saw it, that saw him. The gospel is historical. Tim Heller says the resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth. Irritating. Why is it irritating? Because it might actually be true, right? Because it seems like a resurrection happened that day. That's why. Because historically, it looks like it's true. And so there's just simply way too much historical evidence pointing towards it that to like laugh it off is a bit intellectually naive if you go do the digging on the history of the resurrection. And so, friends, just so you know, faith in the gospel, faith in the resurrection, is not the same thing as faith in fairy tales. It's historical. It was promised in the scriptures. That was my point five. It's biblical. Hundreds of years of promises that this is going to happen. Gospel is proclamational, substitutional, continual, and historical. Let me finish while the band makes their way up um, with just a call for action. The gospel is not about what you have done, but about what God has done. And yet, the gospel demands a response. We're given to in the in the uh, in the passage. Receive grace. Stand in grace. Receive grace, stand in grace. A gospel-centered person, someone who has received grace, and, and a person who continues to stand in that grace. That's why we're going to be singing that song again in a moment. We want to play together. We stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so firstly, uh, there's some of you in this room, and this, this may be you, who actually yet to receive grace for the first time. Receive the gift of grace, which means you have not got down on your knees or can confessed to him your sin and your need. Which means right now the promises that come packaged in the gospel are actually outside of where you are. You're not standing in the gospel because you have yet to receive it. You need not stay there. You can walk through that door by faith. And maybe today is the day you get off that fence and you come down on the side of faith in Christ and you receive for yourself promises of the gospel the total love of God. If that's you, please come talk to Matt or I. We'll be down here at the end of the service. Please come grab us. We'd love to pray with you about what it means to receive the gospel. The second type of person is those who have received the gospel and are seeing the standing. And the call is, the response is, just come stand in the gospel again. Come stand in the gospel again. One way you know you're not doing that is you're putting way too much emphasis on your spiritual performance and not in the grace of Christ. Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus for you? Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus for you? Or as Sam said last week, right, are you clinging by works what Christ has given you freely by grace? Let it go. Receive his grace again. The gospel is true. It's not that you are awesome. It's that you're loved. And that is awesome. Let's pray.
is so much that is so counterintuitive about the way we choose to deal with us. What makes sense to our flesh turns out to be anti-gospel. And it is easy for us to walk in rhythms that place ourselves in the center rather than look to you as the center. So Lord, we want to confess our perpetual inclinations to make everything about us, to fail to comprehend and apprehend what it is you've done. Help us to walk in grace, stand in grace. Help us to receive it. Help us to believe that it really is true for us. We can trust you. Keep us from the sin of getting comfortable with your grace. Thinking like we've heard so many times before that stops making its mark on our hearts. But we never want to be past the sentence Christ has died for our sins without that way of Lord, make us, make us gospel sin. A soft hearts. A soft hearts. And hearts full of faith. And all that you've Lord, we love you. We trust you. We trust you in our future. We trust your intentions towards us. And we trust your promises. So, Lord, we want to come together in the church now where there is one gospel. Which I stand for all of you. Let's see how I want you to put the one.